WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening and thank you for tuning in to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89FM. I am your host, Abby Newton. Now this week, organizations, groups, and people across Michigan State's campus are collaborating for the inaugural Mental Health Awareness Week. In lieu of this week, I decided to explore mental health on Exposure tonight. Now I spoke with health educator Dennis Martell of Olin Health Center and a few students about the importance of mental health and the prevalence of mental health illnesses on campus. To start, let's define mental health. Here's Dennis Martel. Well, if, if you look at what the uh, definition of health is, health is the capacity that an individual has to engage the world at any time, give back to the world, and learn from the world. And when we talk about mental health, an individual has to have that mental capacity to engage the world. So the importance of it, and sometimes we overlook mental health, we, we're only concerned about the physical health, the, metric, the metrics that make up the physical being. But mental health can be as important and sometimes more important than your physical health because it, it, it kind of guides you in how you use your physical body, how you engage the world. And uh, it's, it's extremely important, especially in this day and age of transitions, this day and age of uh, world events and, and uh, uh, with students expressing a lot of anxiety, a lot of emotions, a lot of depression. It's, it's important to not only make people aware of, the, of mental health, uh, but the importance of good mental health. If you feel you have the capacity to engage the world, if you feel like you have the capacity to get off the couch and do the things you want to do, I always think of health as uh, mental health is the same as physical health in a sense. It's all about freedom. If you don't feel like you can get off the couch because you're depressed, you don't have your freedom. It's only when you have your freedom that you're healthy to do the things you want to do. So you look at somebody who has depression and they can't get off the couch and do the things they want. That's not health. You know, mm -hmm. That's not freedom. You want people to be able to do what they feel they need to do to engage the world, learn from the world, and give back to the world. Marisa Martini is an MSU student and the president of the Student Health Advisory Council. So the Student Health Advisory Council is one of Olin Health Center's student groups. So what we kind of work on is we push out a lot of information to students about the different health resources at MSU and we also kind of let them know about um, the status of different student health issues at MSU. Uh, we do a lot of preventative aspects of healthcare, but then we also give input on what we'd like to see happening with student health services, how they could be bettered um, for the student population so it's more geared towards what students are looking for out of their health services um, and making student health resources um, the number one choice for student health at MSU. So. That's kind of what we work on and check. And uh, what do you think are the big issues right now that students are facing in terms of mental health and mental health illnesses? Two of the biggest um, issues for students regarding mental health would be anxiety and depression and those impact students in a lot of different areas within their academic performance or their social circles, um, sleep even. Sleep is definitely another big issue that students sort of have um, problems with figuring out how to navigate sleep and the importance of sleep for ac your academic performance but also for your mental well-being as well. Um, getting the proper amount of sleep is really important and that's something that's hard for college students to do but it absolutely impacts mental health as well and the different mental health issues that we see pertinent for students at MSU. Marisa is very passionate about mental health and its impact on students and the community. Mental health has been something that's impacted me um, personally in my life and also just with family members, um, friends, etc. Um, and back in my hometown, in my high school, there was a point in time when our high school was known as the school where students killed themselves. There were a shocking number of suicides that occurred at my high school and that was something that kind of followed me when I came to college. Um, and then with my role in the Student Health Advisory Council as president, I was able to access a lot of data that anyone can access, but I was just made aware that this data was out there and I saw that um, depression and anxiety are huge issues at MSU, um, bigger issues here than they are at campuses nationwide. 
Um, and so that was shocking to me, and that was kind of a call to action again, that I thought that something needed to be done. Um, and so with the Student Health Advisory Council, each month we kind of have a different focus on a topic. And so one month was mental health, and we had Scott Becker come in from the Counseling Center and present um, the status of student mental health at MSU. And everyone in Student Health Advisory Council was just kind of floored by the data that we were seeing and it was everyone's call to action then and so we really wanted to see something big like a mental health awareness week through because we just thought it was so important um, and so this was something that we started really thinking about in the fall and I'm so excited to see that it turned out in such a huge way um, because I think it's going to be very impactful for some students that may not know that there are so many people at MSU that can relate, um, that think this is important, and want to see everyone get through their time in college the happiest, healthiest they possibly can. Now another student from the Student Health Advisory Council is James Conwell. He is also a representative for the Associated Students of Michigan State University, which is MSU student government. He gives us some insight on why he feels mental health is important. Uh, to me, mental health is really um, equivalent uh, from a physiological standpoint it's equivalent to physical health and just thinking about it in this campus it really just means that in order for every student to have equal access to mental health resources it means that they can succeed equally and so to me um, mental health means that people are healthy they're happy and they can are able to do the things they want without having to feel like there's any kind of inhibition or lock on their mind mental health is especially important during your college years because there are these four to six years that are just so important to determining the rest of your future. And if in order to do well, you have to feel well. And so um, if you're trying to learn and you're trying to do well in your classes, you have to be in the right state of mind. And so it's so important to be in that good state of mind and to have really good mental health so that you can succeed to do all the things you want to in life. James and Marisa both hope the Mental Health Awareness Week can shed light on these issues. What I would hope that people get from the Mental Health Awareness Week is that the student body here is a community that we can really foster the type of conversations about mental health that can be productive and can honestly save lives. Um, and I think that's so important for students to know that there's a support system here, that we are a huge campus, but we're all connected. Um, and we can all be there for each other through events like this. And it's a good chance just for students to even kind of realize that these things are happening at MSU because I know for a while when I was here, I kind of lived in this bubble of like, I don't know if there are suicides that happen here. I have no idea. And that was something I came from my high school experience where it was something that was occurring so frequently and was very scary, honestly, and came here and like didn't really know if that type of thing happened or how a mental health was really affecting people's lives in college, and it does. It, it's a big, it plays a big role in people's college experiences, their mental health and their mental well-being, um, as a lot of the data shows. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's important for students to kind of come away from this week knowing that we're all in this together, that we want to see each other have the best possible college experience, and that we, if you need resources, we have resources here, and that we think this is important, and that we'd like to even allocate more resources for it, and that's why students are kind of um, taking this approach to it where it's not just we want to bring to light the issues, but we also want to um, create the capacity so that more can be done to help students that are dealing with these issues. I think mental health is incredibly important. It impacts so many different aspects of our student life, our day-to-day -day life, our academic studies, personal lives. Um, so I think it's really important that we need to have a focus on it, let people know that if they are struggling with something, that they can talk to people, there are resources out there to help them, um, and that the MSU community, Spartans stand together and they do stand together for mental health as well, and it is important. Um, to be recognized by the student population um, and by even administration that this is something that students care about and that is important in their lives and impacts so many different facets of their life. Now, Marisa talked about that stigma associated with mental health. I asked Dennis his thoughts. Well, you know, I think when we first started here at Michigan State and just the culture around mental health, there was a real stigma. And I think a lot of adults would look at mental health and go, you know, students, young people, adolescents, they don't know what stress is. You know, that we use this word stress and we use this word. And there wasn't a lot of, I think, uh, uh, activity or awareness or resources given to improving mental health of students. Uh, it was more about the other issues at that time, the physical environment. 
uh, diversity and all the things that are important. But I think now it's changed a lot because we're seeing how your mental health, that health, that capacity you have to engage the world, it's changed a lot. There's a lot more things going on. Uh, the data that I've seen over the 30 years of being here has increased immensely. We've seen more students expressing depression. You know, we have we have students who say sometimes they're so depressed uh, at least once a month. And when you get up to the 20, 30 percent range of students saying they're so depressed once a month they can't get off off the couch or, or or do any type of activity, that's disconcerting. You know, it's gotten to the point lately where now we ask questions that separate anxiety and stress. We used to have we used to lump anxiety, stress, and depression all together. But there's such a difference and there's such a increase in the number of students who are expressing anxious thoughts, anxious mental health, that now anxiety is one of the top ones that really impacts students' ability to be successful. He says he hopes the stigma can be lessened through this week. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's an awareness day every 365 days. There's an awareness week for every 52 weeks we have. There's no more important awareness week than I see than mental health because that is how we as human beings engage the world. We have to have mental health. You can have the best metrics around your physical health that are out there. You know? But if you don't have that ability to use your physical capacity to engage the world, it's just not going to work. So what I want people to take away from uh, a mental health awareness week is number one, first students are engaged. This is a student-led initiative. You know, it's a student-led initiative with groups like ASMSU and Shack and the rest of them. This is students telling the rest of the MSU community, we're concerned about this. This isn't uh, originated by my office. It's not originated by the administrators or president. It's originated by students. So I want the community to see that students are actually engaged in trying to bring awareness to their own condition. And so I, I also want people to be aware that the resources are needed. You know, that resources are needed for us to engage those students who come here either with a pre-existing condition or when they're here, this transition is pretty difficult. This is a difficult transition. We think, you know, if you go to college and everything's going to be, you know, just fine and everyone's going to... No, it's, this is a major transition. Uh, it's, it's catastrophic in some ways and some people just can't handle it. So I want to take away from this also to be, we need to provide more support. And lastly, the takeaway from this week would be, let's remove the stigma. You know, I, since I've been here 30 years, I've seen a lot of people go without treatment because they just couldn't present themselves to a counseling center. They couldn't present themselves to anybody in their family and saying, hey, I've got depression, or hey, I, uh, I, you know, I have a lot of anxiety about this. We've got to remove that. People don't have any problem going to a doctor if they've sprained their wrist or that you have a stomach ache. But removing the stigma to, from someone who says, I need some help to deal with this transition or with the world, that's got to go. And I think that's what this will do. When you have people standing up and saying, hey, I suffer from depression, or hey, I have a family member who has an eating disorder, that makes it normative. And we need people to know it's normative because most adults most individuals on this planet will deal with their mental health at some point in their life. I'm hoping that uh, this initiative will engage the community in some really important dialogue about what it takes to be academically and socially successful. Uh, it's important at Michigan State University that we have this Mental Health Awareness Week so that students know that there are resources on campus to go get help at and it's okay to ask for help at those resources. And so with this goal, I hope that we're able to find people who would not otherwise go in. I hope we were able to release the stigma and we are able to actually help and change lives and make sure that people all have an equal opportunity to succeed here at Michigan State. And you talk about stigma and the stigma associated with mental health. Why do you feel there is such a stigma? Um, I think there is a stigma just because we have never treated mental health the same way we do physical health. Uh, and so it's, it's easy to say for people who don't have... Um, you know, depression, you know, just snap out of it, or it's easy to associate with some kind of simple mood. But you would never tell someone with asthma quit having an asthma attack. You never tell someone with cancer, why don't you stop having cancer? And so I think that there's a stigma associated with it because we, we like to think that it's not on the same level 
as physical health, and we'd like to think that it's not the same type of disorder when in reality it is a, an illness and it's something that needs to be treated just like any other disorder. And James can relate to the stigma, the idea that getting help is a sign of weakness. I guess if it helps, I could talk a bit about my mental health uh, past. Um, when, I, when I talk about it, saying that things get better, it can get better, I mean it and I, because it got better for me. Um, when, I, when I say people, I know how you feel, but please ask for help. I know how hard it is. Um, when I was 16 um, and 17, I was, uh, I was really depressed. It was hard to get out of bed a lot of times I, because I felt like every day was the worst day of my life. Every day that someone saw me, it was literally the worst day of my life. And um, it was awful getting out of bed. It was hard to learn. I still did okay in school, but it, it definitely made it more difficult. And um, I asked for help. I, I went and got it, and it, was, it took me a year. It took stigma from friends. It took stigma from family, but I, I got help. And now um, I'm here, and it's not always easy, but I definitely feel better, and I know that it's gotten better, and I know that I'm able to do better in school because of that, and I'm able to succeed and be the person I want to be because I was able to ask for help. So I really hope that from this week people learn, maybe from my story, maybe from hearing other people's stories, Maybe just knowing about resources and perhaps even releasing the stigma that there's places to ask for help, and I hope that they do go ask for help, and I hope that we can help make it better for them. Now, Zach DeRaid also wants to instigate conversation about mental health. He's a senior who is just finishing up his term as president of the Residence Halls Association. He understands how difficult college can be on our mental health. Um, definitely in my life, um, particularly you know with classes, uh, getting involved in different leadership roles. Um, everyone, a lot of people can relate to internships and having to get to that experience. There's so much pressure and stress and the amount of anxiety and depression that exists among students, you know, and it doesn't help that we're cooped up inside from the winter all the time. That can really bear down on you and it can really affect your future and a lot of what you're doing. Um, and it's important that you always remember to find those things that you can utilize to help relieve that because this is a place to grow and this is a place to learn and it's going to be stressful and it's going to be really hard to get through and it's it's okay for everyone and, and I know I needed that at a moment you know I needed to go to the counseling center at one moment because I needed someone to tell me that it was okay that all of this would you'd be able to make it through the amount of pressure that really comes down on you in college. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a time of emerging adulthood, you know, we're, we're going from having someone there all the time, uh, a lot of us having um, some sort of support system back home or used to um, different type of routines and, and a lot of students show up here and it's all on them now. You know, it's, it's all you. It's, it's your time to shine. You've had 18 years of preparing for this, and this is your moment. And the next thing you know, there's, like I said, there's internships, there's class, there's social obligations, there's so many things just pile up that you, you start losing sleep, and you start uh, trying to fit it all in, and I think it just becomes so overbearing. And he wants people to understand that it is okay to talk about. Uh, look at the slogan on there, and that's release the stigma. Um, and I think the point about Mental Health Awareness Week is to get people to recognize that it's okay to talk about it, that it's okay to seek help, that it's okay to have some sort of mental uh, illness within yourself because you're not alone within that and there's a lot of people who support you and who understand what you're going through. And I think that's the importance is that we start the conversation about it and we keep it going. Mental health illnesses are difficult to understand. You cannot see them. People may not be acting as they feel. Here's Zach to build on that idea. We had, I had watched a video myself of a, a young man who had a very successful life, who was doing great academically. He was a star basketball player, and he, was, uh, he had just won the championship for his school, and it was a, such a wonderful moment. And that same day, he found himself in his room with a handful of pills, wondering to himself, uh, wanting to end his life. And as he was writing the note, he said to himself, 
he realized that he hadn't told anyone about how he was feeling and that anyone who had read that note would have no idea that he was this sad uh, because it's so hard for someone who's a lot of things are going right in their life um, he, he made the statement that depression is not being sad when everything is going bad in your life but it's being sad when everything is good and everything is going right in your life and he had every reason to be happy but he wasn't and that makes it even harder to talk about it and it it makes it easier for us to hide it because it's so difficult to come out and say I'm very sad and not get someone to look back at you and say why you have so many reasons not to be and when we don't talk about it it can be catastrophic. I think that uh, this is a this is very much a time of identity development. It's very important, and when you don't have the opportunity to talk about things that affect you and who you are in your life so deeply, they really manifest themselves in some dark ways sometimes. And I think it's. When we start that conversation, we say that it's okay to talk about it. We take away the fears of what are people going to think of me? Am I going to get a job because of this? What if this ends up somewhere where, like, is this going to be on a record somewhere that they're going to know that uh, I struggle with this something, you know, be it depression or bipolar disorder or uh, just anxiety or anything like that? There's so many things that can control your life. And if we don't let you talk about it, then how are you going to figure out how to control it and not let it control you? And I think that it's important that we let everyone know that it is. it starts with us and we need to all remember that this is something we all go through. And talking about it is just going to make all of us become better uh, for ourselves. Zach's partner actually suffers from a mental health illness. He says the most important thing is to remember patients. I think I think one thing that I always like to include too is uh, my, my partner Justin actually has been uh, um, diagnosed with what's called dysthymia and it's actually characterized for the length of um, the depression uh, and so it's it's very much like a clinical depression but it's a depression for a very long period of time and I think that it's important to remember that you can't flip a switch and change it. It takes time. It's important to remember that for yourself, and it's important to remember that with others, because it means you have to find patience for your own growth and your own development, but you have to find patience in others, and try to remember that, yeah, they may have been sad for a really long time, but it's it takes time, and that continual patience and support is what is ultimately going to help them, and what is going to help yourself. Um, so I think it's that's a really key component, I'd like to remind everyone. As I was talking to Zach and he talked about his partner, it made me really wonder how many other students suffer from mental health illnesses on campus. One such student who does suffer is Jill Passananti. She actually works at the radio station, and you would never guess that she's battling this constant fight day in and day out. Um, mental health became prominent in my life when I was 16. Um, I remember just my teachers just taking a big concern in my life and I was just super confused. I was like, why do you care? Like, what's going on? Um, and there was a bunch of stuff going on in my home life um, and they were dealing with my brother and a lot of just his almost failing high school and then, um, I don't know, they all started to realize like something different was about me um, and I didn't even realize it. Like, I didn't realize like my grades were slipping or that like, I was just depressed, um, and they all made me see a counselor who was like, oh, you're depressed, and I was like, eh, no, I'm not, whatever. Um, which um, led eventually to me getting into therapy. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, so I was diagnosed with depression when I was 16. Um, at the same time, I was um, re-diagnosed with ADHD, along with um, generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. And, I mean, at the time, like, I didn't know anyone else who really had mental illness, um, minus, like, my uncle, who's schizophrenic, who no one tends to like. Um, and so it was always just, like, this bad connotation in my family. And we just never talked about it. And even, like, on the way, like, to therapy, my brother and I shared a car, like, he would drop me off, like, 
and pick me up. We wouldn't talk about it. Like, I'd hand the bill to my mom, and we just wouldn't talk about it. Jill says she remembers feeling alone, like no one cared. And it was just a thing that, like, I don't know, like, everyone knew, like, I had depression. Um, but it didn't seem like anyone really cared. And my brother was also struggling with his own um, mental illness at the time and even um, was addicted to different substances. And so while I was like being treated for my depression, um, he would constantly steal my pills and overdose. And so eventually it led to me not being able to like, be on any medication. Um, and my family just was like okay with that. And she had an eating disorder that's effects have actually stayed with her today. Um, and no one noticed, like no one noticed that I was super underweight. Um, and it happened when I started having tremendous knee pain, and now I have permanent knee damage um, from having anorexia athletica. Um, so every time I walk up a flight of stairs, it hurts, and it's a reminder that like I have a mental illness. And like, as much as like you can recover from an eating disorder, like it's always there. And as I kept talking to her, I kept shaking my head in disbelief. I simply could not imagine going through some of these things. There are so many challenges to having a mental illness. Um, honestly, one of the biggest for me personally is the fact that like no one thinks I do. Um, because I'm the girl that tends to have it all together. Like I'm the president of like my student groups. I'm the manager of this radio station. Um, but yeah, like they have, they can't like find a reason to like why I would be sad or why I would cry myself to sleep at night. Um, and it's something that like I look in the mirror and I hate the reflection that like I see. And everyone thinks I'm crazy for thinking that. And everyone thinks I'm crazy for still thinking I'm overweight. And I don't know, it's just the like, idea that like people just assume that like it's like a phase or that like, oh, like what happened? Like it's always like, oh you're sad, like what happened? What caused it? Like, nothing caused it. I'm just sad. Um, and another huge thing is the fact I was diagnosed with borderline personality. Wow. I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder when I was 18. Um, and that was a huge ordeal. I was hospitalized. And I have actually been hospitalized four different times. Um, which is another thing that people are shocked about that this girl, me, has been in four different mental hospitals. Um, but with borderline personality disorder, there's so many negative connotations. And even when one of my bosses found out, um, he was told that it was crazy to hire me for having a mental illness, and especially that one. Um, and even just like thinking about like the risk of suicide I have, um, being a college student, like having attempted suicide before, and having borderline and such low self-esteem, like. The numbers are remarkable, and just people don't realize that. I asked her about that word, conquering, and its synonym, overcoming. Is it possible to overcome mental health illnesses? With There's no cure for borderline personality disorder, so as far as like overcoming it, a lot of it is just like learning to cope, and I feel like you can never fully overcome it. You just are constantly in recovery. Just like the idea that like you're never like in ex-addict you're always just a recovering addict no matter what like there's always going to be that struggle um and so i've thought of a bunch of like little clever ways to help me cope um one thing that my mom disapproves of but i think is really fun um i have scars on my body from cutting and every day like when i shower or get dressed like i see those scars and so I decided to put something more positive on my body, and that's why I have a bunch of tattoos. Um, and they're all uh, reminders of positive events in my life, or scripture verses, or how God has like changed me. And that's just so much better to be able to like look like at my arm and see like the skyline of Detroit compared to like looking at my hips and seeing burns. While Jill may have a multitude of tattoos that have provided help and reassurance. She said it was really difficult for her to seek help from a professional source when she really needed it. Um, as far as me seeking help, it was sought for me at first, um, which of course I was super angry at the start of it, um, but I am so thankful for those people that did like constantly pursue me to get help and like realize there was something wrong because I felt like the change was 
like I was in denial that something was wrong. Um, and it's one of things that's so much easier to see in someone else a lot of the times that like something's off. Um, and once I started to like get into therapy, I would manipulate the therapist all the time. I would manipulate my friends. It was just a constant struggle of like who I wanted to man manipulate that day. And it was so easy for me. Um, and actually that's part of being borderline is you know how to manipulate. Um, but I then I realized like I could start to manipulate like my coping mechanisms. Um, and once I started to like learn I could use like all of those negative things for positive. Um, as far as like, I don't know, like there's different things that like all, I don't know, somehow tie into this mental illness and I just try to always look at the silver lining. Again, this Mental Health Awareness Week sets out to release the stigma associated with mental health illnesses. Jill herself held on to that stigma for a while. Perhaps because mental health was never talked about in her own home. And as far as like what's enabled me to start talking about it more is the fact it was never talked about in my house. And the fact that like I, even a month ago, I went to visit my dad's grave. Um, and now I'm going to start crying. Um, it was just such a hard thing to like see my dad's grave and like see it read like loving like father and husband when he drank himself to death and was abusive all because like he was self-medicating and he never spoke up or sought help and I just worry about that and then watching my brother go through the same thing and thankfully my brother's now sober and has been for four years um but I just think of the cycle that my dad was depressed and drank himself to death and then I remember the day that I found out he died was the first day I ever cut myself. And I just think about like, I don't know, that effect and the cycle and wanting to break that. And the idea that like, I don't know, like everyone struggles and I've started like, once I start talking to people about it, like I realize so many people do. Um, once I stopped like covering up like this one burn mark on my arm like people started to be like like people who knew what it was from was like oh like I used to cut too and it was almost like people were waiting for someone just to initiate that conversation and I I want to be that person to initiate it like I know what it's been like to be in the dark and it sucks and even now like I still like hide some things that I know aren't positive um and all they're doing are hurting me and like keeping them in the dark is just digging deeper and deeper and piercing my heart and all I need to do is bring them into the light and a lot of people don't realize that and even like verbalizing that like you are in pain and then having someone validate that is huge and oftentimes people don't have that um, I don't know and it's just like I just think back to like the people in my life who did that this, my friend who called the police because she was worried I was going to commit suicide, like, I just remember her and thinking that, like, she did something. It's interesting. When I was talking to Dennis Martell from Olin Health Center, he said passion can be defined as conflicted emotion. And then I was talking to Jill, and she said her suffering brought about passion. Her suffering brought about conflicted emotion. With that pain, like, comes the compassion that I can give and the empathy and just, I don't know, um, I always think of this one Bible verse, um, which is, my first tattoo was based off of, and it's Romans 5, 3 through, three through 5, um, which is, but also rejoice in your sufferings, because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us. And I just think about how powerful, like, the idea of suffering is, and it sucks, but it is human to suffer. But it's not human to suffer alone. Like, we are meant to be in community and meant to talk. Like, and I don't know, especially as women, like, we talk twice as much as men do anyway. Like, why not talk about this stuff? Mm -hmm. Why not bring light and change? Conversation? Talk? Discussion? Dialogue? Is that what it takes? to bring light to mental health and release this stigma? Man, 
how do you release the stigma of mental illness? I wish I could just give you an answer. Um, but, like, it's, it changes and, like, sometimes, like, you need that person to release it for you um, by, like, saying it's okay. Sometimes you need to release it in yourself um, by, again, like, bringing it to the light um, and just thinking, like, I don't know, one way that, like, and it's a small, th small things that, like, help me, like, I don't know, I don't know, the more visible signs of my mental illness, and I try in it to not hide those. Um, so this summer I'll be working at a YMCA resort in New York, um, and I'll be in a bathing suit a lot of the time, and that scares me, because you will be able to see all the cuts on my legs and hips, but I'm gonna wear that bathing suit proud and know that like I'm not the only one and I'm not gonna cover it up like this is like part of me like my past doesn't define me but it like in light I don't crap there's a really good quote past doesn't def oh okay so my past doesn't define me but it explains me and it de explains my heart behind why I love people why I just spent a hundred dollars on cards just to send my friends and why I leave notes everywhere for people just to know that they, they are loved and I don't know, I even think about like if I didn't have a mental illness like would I have that appreciation for love um, and I don't know, another thing I do to like in a sense release the stigma um, is of course talk about it, but even like, I let people know like, hey guys, like, it's a rough day, like, I'm struggling, like, can you pray for me, or like, can you like, can you just help me out, like, I, I need to eat food today, and I'm just not, I just can't, don't have the energy to get out of bed, like, I don't know, and so that whole idea of like, asking for help and involving others, um, and even like, I don't know, like, people like, Every Monday I go to therapy and I don't hide that. Like I used to always like just kind of people would always just assume like, oh, you're going to physical therapy because I knew I had knee problems. No one knew why I had knee problems. Um, but now it's always like, oh, I'm going to like, I'm going to therapy. And like I say it like more proudly in a sense of like I'm seeking help. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, it's, and then like through that like, my friends have been like sending me people from all over the place be like, hey, can you like talk to this girl? Can you talk to this girl? And now I'm in connections with people talking about anxiety, about depression. And just like, I don't know, the fact that like I was open so my friends know that like I have experience so they can send like other people to me. I try to get people to just understand the idea that they're not alone and that their story matters and that you matter. like as a person, um, I don't know, I feel like that's the biggest thing, is like, you have a voice, and if you don't, like, I can help be your voice, or someone can help be your voice, and like, if you're stuck under that rain cloud, like, you can grab that umbrella, and yeah, it might take all your strength, and it might take you a couple tries, and occasionally you might need someone to hold it up for you, but like, you, you can Throughout the evening, I felt like the common message was communication, the ability to understand, interpret, and discuss the issues at hand. Now, earlier this year, I did an interesting story about communication, and I thought I'd bring that back. This communication, it starts with a journal. I, I love introducing one group of friends to another group, and I love like what that does, and I love how you can have a social setting, you can add another person, and how it changes the whole dynamic, and I love that experiment, mm -hmm. I guess. That was Khalid Abraham. Some could call him a lover of language or a communication enthusiast, but Khalid has an even deeper passion for handwritten communication. I grew up in Pakistan, and um, your handwriting and writing letters is a, was a big part of my upbringing. Like, we kind of had to do it as kids. We wrote letters to all our friends. And I still write letters all the time to some of my friends all over the world. But he had started to see less and less of it. And 
as I was getting older and as we're getting more ingrained in like social media and email, using email as a mode of communication, I was realizing that we're all getting away from it. Even I was getting away from it. And from this realization, he came up with an idea. It was a project called Handwritten. I had this journal and I thought it would be kind of like a letter, but uh, more in depth and more personal. So I took this journal and I wrote in it for seven days as if it was my own. And instead of continuing his own writing, Khalid decided to pass it on. And I wrote some very general instructions on the front page and I passed it on to a friend and uh, asked uh, that they pass on after seven days and just kind of keep doing that. The first person Khalid passed it on to was Tim Schmidt. At the time when I got the journal and finished my seven days, Tim was the first person I gave it to. And at that time, I'd known Tim for about two years, and I was super intrigued by him because everything Tim does is to the next level. And of course, he took this journal to the next level. Tim is a community analyst for East Lansing, and he moved to Lansing in 2010. I'm like the only person that's moved to the state of Michigan in the last decade. Khalid and Tim are good friends, and Tim actually provided some motivation for the project. One of his New Year's resolutions was to write more. Part of it came out of a conversation that he and, oh, who was it? Matt Ossemacher and Pam, I think, were having about my New Year's resolutions. And one of my New Year's resolutions was to write more letters. And this was a chance to begin that resolution. There was something inside of me that knew exactly what it was when he gave it to me. And it kind of took me back that I was the first person that he thought of. Uh, he entrusted it with me to start. So, I, you know, after his stuff, mine is the first thing that you would read in there. Tim was a little hesitant in being the first person to write in the journal. Being struck as the first person to write in this and trying not to be... You know, I wanted to leave enough space for everyone else and for it to travel, but I really wanted to get some things down. Now Khalid started the journal with talks of his culture, his beard, traveling, and things he loves. But Tim's entry was a little different. Uh, He caught me on a terrible day. Um, I was going through a divorce and all kinds of bad stuff, and uh, he gives me this. And, you know, it's one of those things that I, it's hard to keep a straight face and positive look on things when, it looks when your life's kind of falling apart and mm-hmm. someone hands you this really emotionally intimate thing. Tim was not quite sure how he would use the journal when he first received it. Such a roiling pot of emotions that, you know, I didn't know where I wanted to go with it or what I wanted to do. I mean, the first day I wrote it, and it was the, probably the shortest I actually wrote, but it was probably also the most intimate mm-hmm. and emotionally effusive uh, thing that I wrote in those couple of couple of days I had it but you know I definitely poured my emotions out to this piece of paper these blank pages and I was the first person to write in it and I'm normally the gregarious happy guy and you know my tears stain although with some hesitation he began his first entry on January 26 2012 it was an absolutely terrible day it's an odd feeling keeping a good face on when your emotions are roiling on the inside I don't cry often, but I do cry. It's usually a result of a pileup of unaddressed emotions, or it's one major life-altering thing. Either way, it happens, which is odd given my upbringing. I can barely remember my dad ever crying. My mom, all the time, especially involving family. But emotions are a crazy thing. I'm sure tomorrow will be better. It almost always is. I'm an eternal optimist, after all. So I'll wake up. I'll loosen up the stiff muscles from soccer and I'll soldier on, hopefully smiling like this. Um, By the end of the day, and if not, there is always another tomorrow. As he continued to look back on his entry, I had forgotten what a odd place I was in when he gave it to me. I knew it was right about that time and I couldn't remember exactly when it was, but then I read sort of that first entry and I immediately in my mind's eye knew exactly, I could remember exactly where I was standing, I could remember exactly the pen I was using, I remembered exactly when he handed it to me because he had to leave and he couldn't even come in so I had to meet him in the street. Tim saw that he even included a recipe for chocolate chunk raspberry cookies with drizzled chocolate. Um, If you like cookies, I have a very good cookie recipe in here um, that I thought I should share with the world. 
Tim was the first person to pour his emotions into the journal, and he was the first person to feel the effects of collecting thoughts through writing. You know, and, and then you go through that, and I remember I, get, I put the recipe in there because I had made those cookies the weekend before, and it was sitting on the counter. And, you know, going through that, it, it's a very, um, it, it has an effect on your memories when you read something that you've written. However, being the first person to write in it did give Tim the power to name the journal. I named it Serenity. To truth be told, I was probably watching too much Firefly at the time, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it just felt like after seven days, I had gained a certain amount of serenity out of it, and, you know, it works as a verb and an adjective, and everyone has a different different view of, of what serenity is, mm -hmm. and that's why I thought it fit pretty well. Tim also decided to change the rules a bit. He kept the book for eight days, giving each writer one additional day to collect themselves. And after his eighth day, he passed it on. So travel far and wide, Serenity, and enjoy the journey. It will be a hell of a story when it's done. Now, as I flipped through the journal, I read various entries. And then I stumbled upon Justin Saylor. And he's a very, very good friend of mine. I could say so many things. We could have this whole event be about Fugly, but we won't do that. <laughs> but he's a youper and a very awesome friend, and I, tell, I run almost all my ideas by him because I love how he thinks. He is better known as Bugsy. My mom started calling me Bugsy when I was one year old, and I made the, can't see this, mistake of telling a couple friends in first grade, and it's just ever since first grade it stuck. Bugsy grew up in the Upper Peninsula, or the UP. Now he lives in Lansing, loves hockey, and... Um, I am a web developer at Traction. We are a Lansing-based design and branding studio downtown. But writing is not something new for Bugsy. I, I think writing in it was easy for me, and I, I've kept a journal most of my life, but I, I got it pretty late in the game where most people had already written in it, and it was really intimidating because it was really overwhelming to read these personal thoughts, some from people who I knew well and some from complete strangers, some from people I knew very surface level, I guess. Nonetheless, Bugsy used the journal to share personal thoughts, future dreams, and his day-to-day -day activities. Um, as when Khalid first told me about this, I was kind of like, ah, didn't know what I would say, and then I kind of went back and read my journal entries. Um, and at least to me, they're more entertaining than I originally thought. And entertaining they were. So uh, this is dated January 10th, 2013, time 11.24 p.m. The approximate location was uh, 42 degrees latitude and uh, 84 degrees longitude. My name is Justin William Saylor. I was born to Byron and Nancy Saylor on February 10th, 1983. I'm writing with a pilot precise V5 extra fine pen. I'm unsure what my small contribution to this journal will be over the next several days. However, I know my enthusiasm is high and I already, uh, already thoroughly impressed with the portion I have read. Uh, starting in my teenage years, I used to write handwritten letters to girls and that turned into a, 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 a handwritten journal that I'd keep regularly. But in my college days, I started what I still do today called Daily Fruit. And as of October 8th, 2000, or since October 8th, 2001, there's been 5,963 daily entries. The, the last entry is out with the new and with the old. Notes of little consequence. My handwriting still sucks. These are the tightest jeans I've purchased. I love them, but I should have gotten the 34 in seam rather than the 32. I seriously crushed on Lisa Twinter. Shh. It actually says that. The rain outside is beautiful to listen to, but I am still disgusted by the lack of snow. There are four pillows on my bed. Two will not be used. I crave the glaring sunrise that will wake me naturally in the morning. Day one with love. Uh, January 11th, 2013, rapid fire mode. I wish my brother and I were closer. I get scared to move further away because I want to see my family more as it is, especially my niece as she grows older. She is the most precious thing in my life. I'm becoming only more sentimental. 
I wish more friends enjoyed working on things at coffee shops instead of going to the bar. There is at least one story I have never told anyone about my 50 state tour. I will not tell that here tonight. And today I read the quote, small minds discuss people, average minds discuss events, great minds discuss ideas. I may never be the social butterfly that people ask me to sometimes be. I have not talked to my parents on the phone since seeing them on December 31st. I need to change this soon. I wish everyone I love and I wish everyone I love and adore could come see one of my hockey games. January 12, 2013. Uprestige growth updates from 2011 to 2012. I finally got all my numbers sorted out for the year. Uh, for the year today and worked my tail off alone at Espresso Royale. Uh, revenue, 37% growth. Facebook fans, 66% growth. Newsletter subscribers, 38% growth. Upper Peninsula followers on Twitter, 90% growth. My anonymous Twitter account, which I will not mention, 62% growth. I'm satisfied. And Bugsy even wrote about his evening activity. January 13th, 2013. Today, I lost in the game of Yahtzee. Because of it, I went streaking. Okay, I kept my underwear on. I only play high-stake Yahtzee. It was exhilarating. January 15, 2013, 11.57 p.m. Last food, M&M cookie. Last drink, vanilla caramel iced latte. Last fresh idea, the UBs. Last song, don't leave nobody but the baby. Uh, last creative suite program, Illustrator. Last text, Leanne. Last phone call, Khalid. Last email, Heather. Last Facebook message, Trisha. Last website, fancyapps.com. <laughs> last porn, don't remember, most likely amateur. <laughs> last shave, Saturday. Last kiss, Caitlin, last cried, December, question mark. Last shirt sold, green Uber hoodie. Last letter written, N. Last t-shirt worn, Heather Gray Burton t-shirt, circa 2000. Last hockey game, January 9th, one assist, plus three rating. Last down to earth convo, question marks. Last word spoken, how many gallons of milk do you go through in a day? Last compliment received, you asked the best questions. Last girl I thought about sexually, Alex. Last state visited, Illinois. Last thought of tonight, love. Bugsy spent his last day with the journal, with serenity, reflecting. Today is my last day with this journal. This journal was started one year ago today, and it happens to be in my hands. I have no grand finale. There's a chart of my happiness. It peaked in April. <laughs> I've yet to determine who I'll pass this off to, but I assure you it will not be without great thought and consideration. I'm sure they'll introduce themselves. This is where I stand tonight. This is like one out of 10 rankings. Mind, 8.7. Body, 6.3. Heart, 7. Soul, 9.2. Loneliness, 9.6. Tiredness, 4.3. Hunger, 4.6. Confusion, 1.1. Anticipation, 6.1. Hair, 9.1. Relaxation, 9.6. Family, 8. Work, 7.1. Creativity, 8.1. Efficiency, 7.6. Physical energy, 2. Desire for touch, 10. Healthy eating, 0.7. Hopefulness, 8.4. Anger, 1.3. Fear, 0.6. Style, 8.3. Greed, 3.3. Desire to love, 10. <laughs> Friends, 4.2. Learning, 5. Bugsy out. Again, I took the journal in my hands and continued to read what others had written. 
And then I came upon the appendix. Usually journals don't have such a section, but Amy Moore found it necessary, not only for serenity, but for herself. I did a cop out, so like the last pages of the actual journal, there's like 13 pages of writing in here that I kind of consider just drivel. And then after the journal was actually full, I wrote this addendum, which is like really all the interesting stuff. Amy Moore was the last person to write in the journal. I wasn't really meant to write in this journal. I received it at the very end, and there was a very interesting safety in being the last person to write in it. There was something very freeing about receiving it at that point. It was intimidating reading what everybody else wrote because there was so much beautiful and interesting information in the journal that it's like, well, I can't live up to this. Amy is a designer in Lansing. She's been good friends with Khalid for some time. I'm going to admit I have the biggest crush on Amy Moore's brain. She um, she gets really quiet and then she like, and you don't know what she's thinking and then she says like she she, she speaks and it's gold and I love that creative process. And that's just what she did with Serenity, with the journal. She emerged from her silent thoughts and exposed a difficult transition in her own life. The transition I was going through was probably something that maybe at the time that I wrote this, like there were maybe only four or five people in the world that knew what I was going through. And I, for whether it was real or not, I didn't feel supported at all. Um, and the journal allowed me a way to talk about what was on my mind and feel like it was, um, I don't know, it was just very, it was cathartic. It was like a confessional for somebody that's not uh, religious at all. And this was what she wrote, what she released. Love. So there's that thing. I don't know that I have the courage to write about my own experiences with love here. I've been thinking about it a lot, but I just don't know. I worry that people will think I'm crazy and that's probably a correct assumption. But deep down, I love that about myself and really wouldn't have it any other way. Stalling. <clears throat> In terms of love, right this minute, oh, this is um, July 29th. In terms of love, right this minute, my current relationship is about to end. My marriage to my husband, that is. And it sucks because I love him in a million ways and he loves me back. But I think I'm a damned lesbian. And that just puts an unironable, unironable wrinkle in a heterosexual marriage, doesn't it? Even to myself, I deny this fact, and many of my friends and family freely tell me that I'm wrong. Obviously, people you know have a better window into your heart than you have yourself. No, they don't. Amy continued to write, and continued to look through that window that she spoke of. And here I am now, about to break the hearts of my three and five-year-old daughters, my husband, my family, and myself. That's how I feel like I'm breaking all of our hearts, but I can't help it. She kept the journal through this difficult period in her life. Here we are, packing up the home we made together, the family we've built together, the life we've built together for more than a decade. Separate boxes now, though, marked Amy or Nick. As Amy's time with Serenity came to an end, her thoughts on love deepened as they surfaced. So, love. I think love is many things and takes many forms. Your family, your children, your friends, your lovers, your partners, the mark you leave on the world, no matter how indelible or ethereal. While I am heartbroken and a little bit terrified, I am proud of myself for having the courage to teach my daughters that following your heart is worth some pain, that we all deserve to be happy, that we can find a way to transition relationships from one stage to the next without breaking them. The end for now. I was sitting at my favorite coffee shop when I finished reading Serenity. All I could do was stare at the last page. I began thinking about the lives, the emotions, and the experiences inside the journal. Then I thought, why? Why expose these parts of yourself? Why put yourself out there, become vulnerable, all for the sake of a journal? But there's something about sitting on a desk or on your bed or wherever, at a coffee shop, uh, wherever, whatever is comfortable to you with a paper and a pen. Um, and I think that it just, I, like, like feelings just flow out. And that's right. Feelings certainly did flow out into this journal. 
but I was curious why people felt comfortable writing these deep emotions rather than saying them. Handwriting is um, it's a technology. It's one of the first technologies um, that we had as a race um, that allowed us to essentially externalize our experience beyond the present moment. Now that was Ed Glazer, a good friend of Khalid's. Ed is an incredible thinker, and amongst all his accolades and accomplishments, he also has several years of um, uh, doctoral experience and education in uh, communication, so so appropriate that he'd be here. Ed is curious about the idea and power of handwriting. But one of the one of the things that I thought was very interesting is they did research uh, where they allowed people to either write in a, a notebook or to write on a magic pad that, like you know, those like when you're a kid, you pull the paper up and it disappears. And um, the people that wrote on the magic pad, just the act of pulling that paper up, making their um, their writing disappear, it took away all of the effects. So there's something about um, leaving that stuff behind. There's something about having that tangible expression of what's inside here and knowing that it's out there. I mean, The journal was a form of expression, a form of communication. Ed has done extensive research on that grand word, communication. It's, it comes from the Latin word communicare, which means to impart, to share, to divide out, uh, to inform. It also means to join, unite, or participate in, and literally it means to make common. And I thought it was such an interesting idea that the word communicate means to make common. It means to take whatever's going on inside of me, share it with you, and now we have a common experience. We have a commonality that uh, goes beyond whatever demography we're born with, you know, whatever race, whatever, um, you know, gender, whatever sexualities, all that stuff is I'm born with, but if I just communicate with you, I create a commonality that never existed before. And these commonalities were reinforced through handwriting. Handwriting unifies the hand, the eye, and the attention at a single point in time and space. Um, and the opposite of handwriting, typing, is the abstraction of inscription. Say that, abstraction of inscription. That abstraction of inscription breaks the unity of that Thing. And I think, again, it's just cool that you know, communication is the unifying and uh, handwriting is literally the unifying of mind, body, and spirit or you know, thoughts, mental aspect, um, and it's all typified on the page. The people who wrote in this journal saw the effects of handwriting and communication firsthand. They all agreed that there was something unique about documenting their thoughts, their ideas, emotions, and their desires. That's in a lot of ways what writing is. It's a map of your memories and, and it takes you right back to that place you were when you write, read something that you've written like that. This journal brought these people together through handwriting by building commonalities through communication. Without communication, without the ability to have that expression, uh, we're essentially isolated. We're, um, you know, walking around in the world without the ability to have any commonality with, with each other. And it's only through communication uh, that that commonality and the, the uh, community uh, that we live in uh, exists. Khalid held an empty, leather-bounded journal in his hands in January 2012. He wrote his name on the front in black ink. But now, two years later, he holds in his hand a colorful, full, worn journal. He holds in his hand serenity. It's called ser Serenity, and I know this prayer that's kind of cool. Um, someone told me about it a couple of years ago. It's, it's, it's just really simple. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. For Impact News, I am Abby Newton. see the power of communication, perhaps even when dealing with Mental Health Awareness Week on campus. And according to Dennis, there must be dialogue to understand what is needed, to find ways to enhance resources and find creative solutions to dealing with mental health. And of course, it will take a community. You know, it truly is going to take a community to address mental health, because you have to start almost in K-12. through You know, a lot of times we get students who come here and are not ready for the transition or come here with 
existing conditions, and they should be allowed to come here. I mean, mental health is really no different than physical health. You know, for we, I just came back from the Resource Center for Persons with Disability 42-year celebration about how they've changed the environment for students with physical disabilities. And in the last 10, 15 years, they've added those aspects to their services that deal with the mental health. And we, we, have, to, we have to address that. And so how we're going to change is resources. I mean, we don't have the resources right now to address the number of students who have mental health challenges. We just don't. Uh, we, have, we see them every day. We try to help them any way we can through the counseling center, through primary care, through our educational things. We just don't have the resources to do it. So it's important to bring awareness to the issue of mental health because it's become one of those words like, well, you know, you know, everybody's depressed, you know, and everybody, you know, has anxious. No. When you're looking at how a student becomes successful, either socially or academically, the mental health is key. Mm -hmm. And with the amount of, of data that we have now showing an increase in the number of students with depression, disordered eating, anxiety, stress, uh, relationship difficulties, all these things impact students' ability to be successful and to engage the world. Mm -hmm. As Jill said, you can grab that umbrella, embrace the rain, and start those conversations. Mental Health Awareness Week will continue throughout the week. Tomorrow, there is an event called Embrace the Rain at the Erickson Kiva, starting at 6 p.m. It will be filled with student testimonies, live music, slam poetry, and lots of reflection. And then on Thursday, there will be a community and campus walk and outdoor concert at Beaumont Tower. That begins at 5 p.m., and there will actually be a couple guest speakers, Jill being one of them. Now, for the full itinerary of Mental Health Awareness Week and more information about mental health in general, you can search MSU Mental Health Awareness Week on Facebook. And with that, I say thank you. That's all we have for tonight on Exposure. Special thanks to all of those who make Mental Health Awareness Week possible, all the organizations, the people, and the students on campus. Thank you to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, our station manager, Sam Riddle, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Abby Newton with Impact Exposure. 89FM. Michigan State University Mental Health Awareness Week 2014. Release of stigma. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Impact Exposure.